Welcome to the Language for Leading podcast with the founder and CEO of the Business of Leading Incorporated, Julian Sturton. Since the early 1990s, Julian has equipped leaders from across the globe with an operating system and real-world set of tools that have improved relationships on all levels, and the work has meant real success in business and life for so many. Hello, I'm Jordan Rich, and as Julian Sturton often says, conversations are our means to get things done. Conversations inspire actions and form agreements. Until there's conversation, nothing happens. You've got the Language for Leading podcast, and we're about to make things happen. We recently talked about the passing of the Queen of England, and there's more to the royal story. It's the darker side, perhaps, of the royal story. We were commenting prior to coming on the air, my friend, that Prince Harry's written what might be the biggest-selling book of all time. It sounds like it. It may be very close to the Harry Potter and the Bible. (laughs) So let's explore what's happening there, and then uh, we'll explore another issue that's very much prominent in our news cycle, honesty or dishonesty. But what's what's your take on what's going on? Well, I was just immediately thinking of Queen Victoria because she was the greatest swearer that's ever been known in public uh, discussions. And I think... Now she'd be having a lot of fun because the shit is hitting the fan. <laughs> that I didn't know about Queen Victoria. I knew a lot, I thought. She, but... she knew more swear words than probably anybody on the planet. Actually. Nice to be the queen. Exactly, because you get away with it. So here we have an institution that has been around for centuries. It's, as you say, it's the oldest institution of its kind in the world. Of the royals. That with the Japanese. I think the Japanese right. and the Brits play close second or first. Is it in jeopardy because of what's happening now with the public you could, outcry? It could be, but I think the, pu- the publicity is coming in all shapes and sizes and colors. And I think it's going to bring to the surface what people really want to say either about the royal family or what they want to say in general because Harry's been so explicit. He's exposed everything from nicknaming his penis while he was on an Arctic expedition with the military to the times when he lost his virginity in a field behind a pub in England when he was Mm. 17 years old. So I think he's not held back on any single detail. On a larger, more important perspective for what we do, the language for leading, why is it so popular to delve into this? At at least it seems that way. I don't mean... Uh, critically, but I mean, the masses seem to be eating this stuff up. Why? Well, we're, we're as a species, we're a bit like a loss for words. So we've subjugated our ability to be very straight and having the articulation and the, the full-blown vocabulary to communicate as if like we're going on this conversation now. Uh, life goes live. It's not waiting around until somebody's memory is trying to remind you as to what's the right thing you're supposed to say. And I think the exposure of what Harry is is putting himself to is showing people that you can't expose the experience that Harry's been through just because you're on Facebook or on social media. And I think that's Mm. going to be a good for the public at large, actually. There's a sense that... uh there's a spoiled child here, a narcissist. But at the same time, there's a bit of sympathy for this individual. He lost his mother. Very much so. His mother was the most popular woman 
on the planet when she was mm. alive. And she wasn't willing to, to kowtow down to sort of the, the firm or the institution. So she was a troublemaker with a cause. And she really made herself vulnerable. And that's part of what Harry's doing now. He's, he said on TV with Stephen Colbert that he feels excited about the vulnerability that he's exposing right now, which I think mm. is good for people. Mm -hmm. People are very, very afraid of making themselves feel vulnerable. And he's saying, no, follow what I've been doing and find a way that's appropriate in your discussions with your family, with your colleagues, with your wife, with your daughter, with your son, so you can never hold back. And I think we've allowed a lot of what goes on in social media to compromise rather than being straight with one another. So it's miles apart from his grandmother's, his late grandmother's approach to life. Oh, absolutely. She didn't need to argue, so she didn't have to. Mm. There was no need. She was at the top of the tree, and she set standards that were unprecedented. She had no whip to crack or no authority. She had to just be the queen. Right. And people loved her for that. As we discussed in a previous episode, we talked about that element that probably is gone forever uh, with the her passing. I think so. Yeah. Because she was put on a pedestal almost by default. When her father, George VI, who was made king, it was by default of what her father's brother right. had done by breaking the rules. Mm. He broke the rules. And I don't think anybody's actually forgiven him, except his daughter, King George's daughter, the queen who's just passed away, mm. didn't have to forgive her father. So she was put on the spot, and she made that very important announcement, I think it was at the age of 21, when yes. she said she would provide service <laughs> and be unstoppable in her own particular way, and she's been that way. So let's bring it back to the language for leading. And then we have another topic that's uh, topic du jour, and that's politicians lying, and there's nothing new there. But when you examine uh, on a world stage such as this with People magazine and Oprah and all the media forces coming together, when you examine this young couple, Meghan Markle and Harry, um, and they're in the midst of the spotlight, they're soaking it up, they're making millions, but they're also expressing themselves how does the language for leading adjust to this kind of behavior? Well, the adjustment is that we've made a, a particular clarification between evidence based upon what we know and what's referred to as our history. So our memories are built upon protecting what we know. Of course, I've introduced another part of the leveling the playing field, which scientifically is referred to as the frontal cortex. I refer to that as a way of expressing who we are and who we're going to be, rather than who we were and who we're supposed to be. So the language of leading clarifies the difference between what we know and what we're about to be exposed to. And Prince Harry has set that kind of standard by exposing himself so he doesn't have to tell lies. We tell lies because we're afraid of the past. His honesty is very refreshing, you would say? I think very refreshing. Mm. Now, if you do, which the media likes to do, take some of those particular 
expressions based upon his experience out of context, of course, you're going to accept certain people. Like, for example, when he made clear that he'd actually uh, killed 25 people mm. as members of a Taliban. He was ordered to sit on the battlefield with a machine gun, getting rid of the enemy. Now, it was, it was a bit of a out of order for him to go public with that, except he was being honest about his responsibility in serving in the military. Now, he said that actually 10 years ago before the most recent exposure. So it's not as if the public wasn't aware of that. And we now know that he uh, was treated for PTSD upon returning, uh, like so many soldiers. Yes, exactly. Indeed. Exactly. Well, let's shift gears and segue into something that's related to the times, and that is those in the public eye who are caught lying. It's nothing new. It's been going on since man uh, arrived on the planet, man and woman. Yeah, you wrote a piece called The Truth About Lies that we'll use as a guidepost here. The most obvious example as we speak involves a congressman named Santos of New York, Republican, doesn't matter uh, at this point what party, who uh, has apparently lied about almost every aspect of his resume. He still got elected. So using that as a jumping off point, let's talk a little bit about lying. The truth about lies. What is the truth about lies? Well, I, I start from inviting people to ask who they are. And so they're usually, and we are typically uh, required to let people know our identity. So if all we had was the reliance on our identity, right? And I suspect that the word ego had a lot to do with if all we had to go by was past experiences. So we build our identity based upon what other people already know about us and what we already know about ourselves. Now, if we're rather uh, going, if we go overboard with uh, exaggerating past experiences to get ourselves in a certain position of authority, because remember, being elected as a politician can have its attractions. Of course. And of course, it can be very popular if you can get away with suggesting that the things based upon your past experience will get you a job in the hierarchy of authority. So this happens all the time, resume inflation and uh, bragging about a record in the military that doesn't exist. What's always interesting to me is how obvious it is to catch someone in a lie like that. I mean, we've seen it with presidents, we've seen it with prime ministers, and we've seen it with uh, school principals. I mean, they're all human. We're all human, sinners. But it's, it's, it's remarkable that people will lie to the extent that they're so obvious that they're going to get caught. Right. I think it comes down to the eighth deadly sin, thou shalt not get caught. <laughs> and, of course, we're, we're, we're religious up to a certain level. So we follow suit with the first seven deadly sins, and I'm not going to get into religion. But, of course, if thou shalt get caught, you've got to be responsible. I once had a conversation with both my children very late at night while I'm teaching them the difficulties of driving and how to be responsible when you are in difficult circumstances. So it brought about the term lying and telling the truth. And I remember saying to my children, look, you will find yourself in particular predicaments where you are not quite sure as to whether you're going to tell the truth or tell a lie. But I said, either way, you're going to be responsible for the consequences. And I don't think my children have ever forgotten that. Yeah, I haven't forgotten it. 
This is a very powerful sentence. There is one ultimate truth in our world, I'm quoting from you. This truth is the ability to say what happened. By way of the truth representing what will have actually happened will continue to determine the power and strength of the future. There's always that uh, dichotomy. Very much so. What was said, what was written, and what really happened. Well, I often remember saying to my kids, look, we can argue about your interpretation of what is now being a mistaken uh, miscommunication about the truth. I just regard on what facts, facts are basically what happened. Part of human nature is to want to believe, isn't it? Sure. When you watch a film or a television series and it says based on a true story, it's very likely that a lot of the facts have been fudged to create a better resolution, a better emotional outcome. That's part of our DNA, isn't it? I think it is because I think it, uh, being able to be forced into telling the truth, which is why, in fact, certain governments who want to uh, catch people unaware – especially in countries that are not considered to be democratic, they will force people to say things that are not true to get evidence to hold that person right, against their own will in order for their own particular uh, government that is not a democratic, it's sort of to, to be the authority. And you're seeing it now all over the world. Well, when you look at authoritative dictatorships and so forth, it's, it's all about the, the big lie, which is a quote from... Uh, the Goebbels era. I mean, the big lie, exactly. and uh, you see it in communist countries. You see it in uh, in uh, totalitarian dictatorships in Africa and South America and so forth. Everything is about the greatness of the state, and and it's all made up for the most part. It can happen in a democracy too, can't it? Well, I think it's part of human nature to try and gain control over circumstances that you're uncertain about, and one thing we're uncertain about is the future a future that hasn't happened, which is why we continually, based upon us being crazy of hopes, we write, we write to suggest that the only thing we know is based upon past experiences. So, of course, the language of leading is designed to allow people to uh, uh, make declarations based upon what their intention is going to materialise into their own particular real-life examples without allowing their past to get in the way. Unfortunately, we live in a sort of a vicious circle. Now, as a voter in a democracy, how can we apply the language for leading to vote and get better results? Um, I think we have to stop taking sides and focus on the actual issues at hand. Thank you. Love that. If you have a problem with your children's education, right, it's not much good to go to ask your elected official to fix the inability that you've actually allowed your child to get away with by not doing their homework. Mm. I, I want to come back to what you just said, though, uh, not taking sides. It's so easy to take sides. And these days, across the globe, and certainly in this culture, people take a side and there's no wiggle room at that point. Um, they believe whatever they want to believe, even if the facts don't bear them out, and they refuse to budge so many people. They haven't come to terms with that background conversation, in my opinion, right? Yeah, exactly. And how important is the personal constitution that I've written and you've written and many of your followers have written to ensure that we're guaranteeing at least as much as we can an, an honest and forthright 
uh, band of leaders? How important is the, our own personal constitution to that? Well, look at the things that we fight <clears throat> for, whether it's on the battlefield or whether it's in a particular court of law or whether it's in a school playground. Uh, the most important example of a constitution is a family. And I look at my own particular family. If, if I was arguing based upon Julian having to take sides in relationship to his wife, how long do you think my marriage would last? Uh, not very. Yeah, so I have <laughs> to see things from the other person's perspective, and that's very, very difficult, especially when you're, if you're in an arguable frame of mind. So I stopped arguing with my wife. Good strategy. Yeah, and uh, as they say, and I've heard it many before, uh, happy life, happy wife. Exactly. Truth will continue to exist through agreements of what happened. And I think that's coming back to that uh, based on a true story thing. Wars are fought. The victor tells the story. We all know that. Uh, I was down in Charleston, South Carolina, the, not the capital of the South at the time, but certainly the center of Southern life uh, in the antebellum period. And... Um, what was interesting was everybody down there who's a solid American citizen and believes in freedom and all that said the same thing to me. Well, the victors wrote the story, wrote the history, meaning the North. Yes. So their sense of truth is a little bit different than the sense of truth that we up here have. Well, we had to eventually look at the bigger picture as to far and wide how the human race is going to be exemplified in the future of this great country. We're a nation of immigrants. So we had to figure out exactly whether we're going to fight over our differences or look at the commonality of our differences. So, of course, the Civil War sorted itself out, even though we've still got arguments based upon people still wanting to sort of protect their own particular self-interest and their own particular territories, mm -hmm. which is what human beings have been doing for millions of years. We do have, as you point out in this article, The Truth About Lies, two sides to the fence of our emotions. We've got truth and we've got non-truths, untruths. Can we live with, without one or do we need them both to balance ourselves? Well, we're in the middle of deciding how to balance the truth. We can negotiate or we can argue based upon our habits of the past. So we're creatures of habits. We usually base upon our, our very survival. And uh, that survival emotional mechanism is based upon what we already know. But, but, and, we're, but we're in a situation, I think, where we're frightened to confront things we don't know. Even today, with all the technology and knowledge and science and understanding of the world, even today, people are confused when it comes to the truth? Well, I think there's a rather arguable discrepancy between what is being called artificial intelligence. Intelligence is how we're going to actually survive on this planet in relationship to one another and our surroundings. If we're going to be smart about how we're going to treat ourselves on this planet, it's not as if we've got a reserve planet waiting in the green room. There is only one planet, and you can't argue using politics to have a discussion as whether the glaciers are going to melt. The glaciers don't care about our political system. Unfortunately, our political system is very indecisive because it goes back to the old adage of taking sides. 
and where you're going to put your next particular tent or where you're going to find your next cave to actually carry you through the shelter part. And then you've got to figure out where you're going to plant your crops. We're still performing in that particular way, but to argue doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And the lack of compromise that used to be part of the fabric of America seems to be very much in vogue. The art of compromise is not in vogue, I should say. It's very difficult to get anybody to agree from different perspectives on anything anymore. Well, yeah, because we've, we've dug our heels in basically to protect the old adage of protecting things we know, whether that's money, territory, or belief systems. And that seems to be the propagation of, of all the wars that are going on. And everything that I've learned about the language for leading, working with you, sitting with you, chatting, having tea, everything I've learned uh, floats into my mindset. And that has to do with opening up your ears, uh, allowing information to flow through, and uh, not being fearful of everything coming at you, just taking it in and letting it happen. Well, I think you're bringing up a very important point, which is the difference between hearing and listening. We, yeah. And, of course, we hear because we've, got, we, we, we've developed the machinery. So our hearing system is based upon that machinery that goes on as a way of protecting us against threatening conditions. So our hearing machinery has been around as long as we've been around because we had to hear for the sounds of saber-toothed tigers. We had to hear the sounds of rocks coming down the mountain, right, in order for us to know exactly what actions and what steps we had to take. Listening wasn't a requirement to actually base your very survival instincts. So our hearing became very instinctive. Listening is very difficult because our natural hearing machinery based upon how we are habits and creatures of habits. So part of our habitual behavior came with the mechanics of one of those mechanical systems was our hearing machinery. So I am learning, and it's been a lifelong pursuit, but I'm really taking it to heart now, to employ the listening gene. And it does change things so radically. Yeah. Because you get a better perspective on your own opinion, on others' opinions. You understand where people are coming from. You may not agree. You may not find them pleasant, but you at least understand if you listen. Well, you didn't have to rely on getting along with your neighbor when you were living in the prehistoric Neanderthal days. Your job was your own individual survival. It was at later times when we built communities, when we allowed ourselves to let down our guards to talk to other people who at the very beginning were somewhat adversarial. So eventually we developed communities. And that's why, in fact, the listening came with the development of our ability to listen outside of our own individual territory. And you and I have talked about this a lot. Um, There's so much noise cancelling out the ability to listen these days. Electronic, digital and just chatter, uh, the kind of stuff that almost sounds like uh, static, so pervasive. Clearing the air, taking a deep breath, and being in silence. I don't want to get too 
uh, meditative here on you, but really makes a difference when you can really listen. Yeah, and if I'm wanting to listen to my wife and I've got the TV on loud or any other mechanical device, that's blocking out the ability for my wife and I to communicate with each other. What do you think the relationship between my wife is going to look like? Well, you've said in the past, and I think what you're saying now is you and me, we have the ability to control the flow of a relationship by turning that TV off, by focusing, by listening, by really hearing somebody. Well, it's part of your actions where you're going to be responsible for the relationship. And without relationships, uh, the planet, as far as the contribution that human species is going to make, will fizzle out. We're here to be related. And what better way to be related successfully than by employing the language for leading as a tool? Exactly. We've all got a life to lead. Of course, leading is in an authority. It's uh, my wife has a life to lead. I have a life to lead. And I've betrothed myself to my wife under the eyes of some higher power than just protecting hers and mine own individual self-interest. It what co- it's what constitutes a marriage. And you have got to work at it. You can't just put your feet on the family pedestal waiting for the marriage to succeed. Well, there's an old adage, anything worth doing is worth working for. Anything worth having is worth working for. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The truth about lies, we touched on the royals again, we touched on politics, but we really are touching on uh, the human experience, which can come full circle when you start to realize the language for leading is here to help. As are you, my friend, here to help. Yes. Selfless. Selfless. (laughs) And charming. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Julian. The conversation continues on the Language for Leading podcast with Julian Sturt, available on all podcast platforms. Remember to subscribe, download, rate, and review the show, and tell your friends and colleagues about it. The Language for Leading podcast, impactful conversation about fundamental principles that will grow your business and change your life for the better.